The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast, hosted by the litigation and policy team at Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research platform of Bloomberg LP. This podcast series examines the intersection of business, policy, and law. My name is Elliot Stein. I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials litigation. And my name is Nathan Dean, and I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering financials policy. So our topic for today is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, better known as the CFPB, the primary U.S. regulator for the consumer finance sector. And it's an agency that I would say has received you know, a lot of criticism over the years, largely from the conservative side of the political aisle, almost from the day the agency was created by Congress in 2010. The Bureau is currently fighting a case in the U.S. Supreme Court that alleges its funding structure is unconstitutional. And since that case has important ramifications for the agency and the consumer finance sector overall, we wanted to talk to somebody who has been going against the agency for almost from the day it began operations in July 2011. Uh, that person is Alan Kaplinsky, senior counsel at the law firm Ballard Spar, and the former longtime practice leader of his firm's Consumer Financial Services Group, which has more than 70 lawyers across 14 different offices. Alan devotes his practice exclusively to counseling financial institutions in consumer financial services law and defending those institutions against lawsuits by consumers and government enforcement agencies, including the CFPB. In addition, Alan was instrumental in launching the Consumer Finance Monitor blog and podcast, both of which are resources that I have found to be incredibly invaluable over the years. I truly think there's no better person than Alan 
Kaplinsky to discuss the CFPB and its impact on consumer finance institutions. And so with all that, Alan Kaplinsky, welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast. Well, thank you very much, Elliot. Uh, It's indeed a pleasure to be on your podcast show. As you know, I'm usually uh, playing the role of the host on ConsumerFinanceMonitor.com. So uh, it's really refreshing to have the roles reversed today for me. Yeah, likewise. I'm used to listening to you host. Um, and like I said, I've been you know, a longtime fan of both your blog and the podcast for several years. And I, I feel like this is sort of a longtime fan, first-time caller moment for me. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, there's a lot we want to discuss, both about how the CFPB has affected your clients over the years and, of course, the pending Supreme Court case over the agency's funding. Um, But before we jump into those topics, we generally like to start our episodes by asking our guests a little bit about their background, um, you know, how they got to where they are currently. So, you know, maybe we can start with you telling us a little bit more about your legal career, how you wound up in consumer finance law, and then also, you know, tell us a little bit more about Ballard Spar's uh, consumer finance practice. Be happy to do that, Elliot. Uh, So um, I've been practicing law for a very long period of time. I um, graduated law school in 1970, uh, clerked for one year with a judge on the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, then went to work for a law firm in Philadelphia uh, called, uh, at the time, Wolf Block Shore and Salas Cone, a firm uh, that unfortunately Uh, no longer exists. I started out as a general corporate securities lawyer. Uh, I went in-house to work for a company, uh, it was about six years into my career, uh, a company that was engaged in the business of making loans by mail to school teachers. And it was from that moment on that I got hooked on consumer financial services law, uh, uh, an area of law that at the time was rather arcane. Uh, It was not something that uh, people just ordinarily would even think about getting involved in, Uh, but uh, but I did. Uh, And uh, that really shifted my career. I was an in-house lawyer for about three years then I went back to Wolf Block Shore and South Cone to head up a, a banking and consumer finance practice. Uh, was there until 1995. And then I uh, went over to Ballard Spar along with three other people that practiced with me at the time. There were four of us to start a consumer financial services group for uh, the firm. Uh, And I guess, as you could say, as the cliche goes, the rest is history. Uh, Our practice uh, uh, was a very strong practice from the beginning. Uh, uh, We were always ranked in the top tier of Chambers, which is the uh, company that evaluates law firm practices. Uh, And, but things, really took off for me and my practice when the CFPB was created by the enactment of Dodd-Frank 
on July 21, 2010, uh, a date that's very etched in my mind because that was uh, one year later, the CFPB became operational. And that was the very day that we launched our blog, which at the time was called CFPBmonitor.com because we were going to be devoted only to all things CFPB. But then, of course, uh, politics got in the way. Uh, Trump got elected and uh, we felt that we needed to broaden our focus at that time. Uh, to cover all things in the consumer finance industry, not limit ourselves to the CFPB, uh, because we recognize that the CFPB be, would become less of a factor uh, during the Trump era. And that's indeed what happened. But our practice just grew like topsy. We couldn't hire enough people to handle all the work that got generated by the CFPB. And the CFPB basically generated work in three distinct areas for us. One, uh, it was the regulatory area uh, because uh, right from the very beginning, they were issuing all under the, then the directorship of uh, Richard Cordray, the former Ohio Attorney General, uh, they became extremely active in proposing and then finalizing regulations initially in the mortgage origination servicing area. Uh, but then once they were finished with that, they expanded literally into every area under the sun, credit cards, auto finance, deposit accounts at banks, payday lending, you name it they were involved in it. So that was one area, regulatory. Second area was um, in, uh, enforcement. They became extremely active in the enforcement area, uh, going initially going after the big banks for uh, challenging the so-called add-on products uh, that uh, people would sign up for if they had credit cards. Uh, club memberships and various kinds of insurance products and identity theft protection. And literally every major bank that was issuing credit cards uh, became the focus and, the, and a target for the CFPB. And there was a lot of money that got paid out at that time by the big banks. I now understand why they started that way. They knew that that would get a lot of media attention, but eventually they just, you know, went after everybody that they could get our hands on. And for a period of time, uh, we were just inundated with defending cases in, against the CFPB. The final area that uh, also generated a huge amount of work for us was the supervision that the CFPB uh, was involved in. First of all, all any bank that had more than $10 billion in assets, they became the major supervisor rather than the regular traditional bank regulators. Uh, and non-banks, uh, payday lenders, student lenders, uh, uh, were automatically subject to supervision. Uh, and then they could 
little by little. And whenever they saw an area they wanted to supervise, they, they could uh, issue what was called a larger participant rule. And by uh, at this point today, there's hardly any area of the industry that they don't supervise, which means regularly examine. And we have to spend a lot of time uh, educating our clients and preparing them for examinations. And then uh, all too often, uh, the CFPB examiners will find something they don't like and it will morph into an enforcement uh, procedure. So uh, it, it uh, ironically, while what I've described to you uh, was a boom to our consumer finance practice because we grew tremendously uh, and really had have had then and have today one of the largest consumer finance practices in the country. All of this was good for uh, us, but uh, and other law firms that practiced in this area but not so good for our clients, uh, many of whom, uh, you know, had to endure, uh, the, I guess you could say, the wrath of the CFPB in a variety of different ways. And uh, uh, to be perfectly candid with you, uh, my belief is there's been tremendous overreach on the part of the leadership of the CFPB uh, particularly Cordray, uh, not so much Kathy Kraniger, who was there as the leader under the Trump administration, but finally with Rohit Chopra, who is uh, just, uh, uh, in my view, uh, run amok. Uh, the agency is, uh, you, you could say, virtually almost out of control in terms of the different things that it is involved in. And the time and the effort and the cost to the industry is way disproportionate to the benefits that um, consumers have enjoyed uh, during the last 12 or so years. So, so I hope that gives you uh, a little bit of uh, my background, our group, and, uh, uh, you know, and uh, leading up to. Uh, uh, the topic du jour, namely the CFPB, and in particular, uh, this uh, major uh, piece of litigation pending before the Supreme Court today. No, that that's been extremely helpful, and I, you know, I, I also uh, I showed up in Washington D.C. literally a month after Dodd Frank was signed into law. So I, I sort of feel like the CFPB and I grew together. You know, as Washington uh, uh, certainly. And earlier this year, we had uh, Mick Mulvaney, the former acting director, and one of our questions was, "Why'd you bring donuts to the CFPB?" So it's sort of like, you know, CFPB has always been one of those regulators out there that uh, certainly it gets a lot of interest amongst those in the financial regulatory space, but maybe not so much interest amongst those, uh, you know, just in the, you know when compared to like the Fed or the SEC or so forth like that. You know, the one question I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to your your three focus areas because I really liked how you phrased that out. You know, you had the regulatory policy, you had the enforcement, and you had supervision. When you look back on the history of the CFBB and you think about your clients, which one of those areas was the most I'd say important for clients to look at or most impactful? And do you anticipate that trend is going to be the same going forward? 
Sure. Um, well, to answer your question, you almost have to uh, you, you have to take a look at the different uh, directors of the CFPB over its 12 or so years that it's been in business. Clearly, uh, when um, Cordray uh, was the leader of the CFPB, I would say uh, there were two areas. And they both had just an enormous impact. The one uh, area that I guess gave the most agita uh, to my clients was the enforcement area, uh, because they were very, very, they would very often uh, identify practices that were um, very common uh, that didn't violate specific consumer financial protection laws like the Truth and Lending Act and the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, Fair Credit Reporting Act, but rather practices they didn't like. So how did Cordray go after the practices? Uh, he hung his hat on a provision that uh, contained in the, the Dodd-Frank Act that created the CFPB, uh, a provision that is uh, referred to as the UDAP provision, U-D-A-A-P. And that stands for Unfair, Deceptive, uh, and Abusive Acts and Practices. And uh, if he didn't like something you were doing, thought it was unfair to consumers, uh, he would say, uh, it's unfair or it's abusive uh, or deceptive. The abusive prong of UDAP uh, was in particular a troublesome thing for the industry because nobody really, it was the first time uh, that term had ever been used and it wasn't very well defined in Dodd-Frank uh, or it was defined but in a way that you could basically shoehorn anything into that, uh, that uh, it, you didn't like if you were the director. I mean, it reached the point under uh, Cordray's regime that when clients would call me to find out, or they would tell me they're about to launch a new product and they'd want to get my opinion about the product. And I would so often say to them, well, it technically complies with every specific federal consumer protection law, like the ones I just referred to. Uh, and it also complies with all the state consumer protection laws. But I'd say to my client, there is this UDAP provision. And, uh, and I explain a little bit about that as I have to you today. Uh, and I'd say, I don't think the, that uh, the CFPB is going to like your product, either because you're charging too much money for it uh, or they're going to feel that it isn't a really nice product for consumers. And so it, it became almost like a um, little bit like consumer reports, you know, getting a, a bad uh uh, evaluation of your product in consumer reports. Um, as a result of that, that really for, uh, thwarted, and today 
continues to this day to thwart innovation uh, because <clears throat> companies are fearful of the CFPB. They have all kinds of powers. They literally can put you out of business if they want to. They can fine you millions and millions of dollars, and they have done that to many companies. Um, get restitution for consumers, even when they're not deserving of it, and uh, and tarnish your name uh, because they they do get a lot of media attention, and um, uh, and so under Cordray there was huge focus on that enforcement. Uh, a lot also on the regulatory area, uh, maybe not so much supervision, but you might recall, Elliot, that during that period, that was shortly after the economic meltdown, you know, that had occurred in um, uh, the, the uh, late 2000 and single digits, 2007, 2008. And it was mostly the mortgage area that melted down. And so Congress uh, enacted in Dodd-Frank all kinds of statutes regulating mortgage origination and mortgage servicing. So the that area of our mortgage clients, uh, we had a, within our consumer financial services group, we have a very specialized group called a mortgage banking group. And they were very focused on compliance and bringing all of their clients uh, into compliance with all these new regulations. Then all of a sudden Trump gets elected. Kathy uh, Mick Mulvaney serves there as an acting director. Uh, yes, he did bring donuts the first day that he was on the job. Uh, he had two jobs at the time. I think he was head of uh, GAO as well. Uh, OMB. OMB. Yeah, right. And uh, uh, he brought donuts because he, I think he knew what a pariah he was going to be. I mean, most of the staff were holdovers for the, from the Cordray era, era, very progressive people, and they did not like it all. Uh, this major shift that occurred politically. Uh, and then you get to Rohi Chopra. And with Rohi Chopra, not so much the enforcement anymore. In fact, people will be surprised to learn that uh, he has brought fewer enforcement actions and launched fewer investigations uh, than any other CFPB director including Kathy Kraninger and including, uh, uh, of course, Cordray. Um, but he's more than made up for that in spades by, uh, uh, by uh, regulations or what I would call quasi-regulations. And what that means, he does a lot of, uh, if he wants to change the law on something, he prefers not to go the formal regulatory route because that takes a lot of time and you have to get solicit. You have to publish it in the Federal Register. You have to have a comment period. And he doesn't like hearing so many opinions that disagree with him when he publishes something for comment. So instead, he will issue advice uh, in more informal ways 
that um, into his way of thinking accomplish the same objective, but he, it enables him to do it a lot quicker and he can do it uh, uh, unilaterally without having to go through the, the formal process under the, the Administrative Procedures Act. So he issues guidance, he issues circulars, he uh, uh, it, it makes speeches where he announces policy. He puts things on his blog where he announces policy. He amends the examination manual as he did uh, about a year or so ago uh, in a, a very expansive way, uh, which we could get into in a little more detail because I think it demonstrates the terrible overreach of Director Chopra where he took the UDAP exam manual and he decided that uh, un an unfair practice uh, encompassed any kind of discrimination, not just the discrimination that had been prohibited for years by the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and the Fair Housing Act. He went well uh, beyond that. And of course, he's been challenged in court about that. And so, he lost. He lost that. And, and he lost. So, yeah. so, yeah, so far. Uh, yeah. It's not yet uh, a done deal uh, because all these, um, a lot of these uh, cases, uh, uh, you know, aren't, uh, aren't done. There will likely be appeals, but I think ultimately he is going to lose that particular matter. And the interesting, one of the things that not too many people have focused on in that case is that the court, one of the defenses of the CFPB was this isn't a formal regulation. So they moved to dismiss the lawsuit. All we did was amend the exam manual. You know, that's not, uh, you know, the same thing as a full-blown regulation. Well, the court made mincemeat out of that argument and said, in so many words, you got to be kidding. You know, and he looked at uh, speeches that Chopra had given in the press release that they issued. And they said, well, you know, if that's the case, why, why is the industry uh, so concerned about how to comply with this uh, requirement. In fact, uh, you know, when you think of discrimination, you, you typically think of things where people discriminate on the basis of race or sex or sexual orientation uh, or, or national origin. But in, in Rowett's case, he was talking about all kinds of protected classes. It would have uh, if this uh, exam manual change had held up, it would have meant that um, a bank uh, would have to open up accounts for people that don't live anywhere in their local geographic area. Uh, they would have, if you would want to open up or borrow money, uh, you couldn't be uh, uh, discriminated against based on geography, uh, which Congress never said that uh, that was uh, prohibited and banks have been doing that for decades. And yet he concluded that that was illegal. So um, he is, uh, he's trying to do too much too quickly and he is pushing the envelope further than any other director. People used to complain about 
Cordray pushing the envelope. But boy, Chopra has made Cordray uh, really uh, look pretty reasonable <laughs> in the eyes <laughs> of the industry. Um, and, and he's getting back into an area near and dear to my heart, uh, which uh, uh, is um, uh, I'm pretty upset about. Uh, he's trying to, even though one of the last regulations issued by Cordray in his regime was a regulation banning the use of class action waivers in arbitration provisions. I was the one, myself and my colleague, Mark Levin, pioneered that area uh, a couple decades ago. Uh, we came up with the idea of using arbitration agreements in deposit accounts and consumer loans. And uh, the Dodd-Frank Act contained this provision that required the CFPB to investigate the area, do a study. Uh, he uh, spent about two or three years, maybe a little bit longer, uh, doing a voluminous study, held field hearings in three locations. I testified on behalf of the industry in all of the locations. Uh, but I knew eventually Cordray was going to do something that would make arbitration uh, not worth uh, worthwhile anymore. And sure enough, he didn't ban arbitration altogether, but he said you couldn't put a class action waiver in an arbitration agreement. That is language that says uh, if you have a dispute with the consumer, you have to individually arbitrate it. You can't be a named plaintiff or part of a class. Uh, and as all of you know that followed the history of that rule, uh, shortly after that, you had the change in uh, presidency, uh, Obama being succeeded by Trump. Uh, and um, uh, that change, in fact, had already occurred by the time the regulation became final. Uh, but then under the Congressional Review Act, that uh, uh, regulation was overthrown. Uh, and that yeah. was the end of that. But it's back now. Uh, a group of consumer groups have filed a petition with uh, 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 Chopra to, in effect, resurrect some anti-arbitration regulation uh, that basically would say uh, you can have uh, enter into arbitration with the consumer, but only after a dispute arises. You can't have pre-dispute arbitration. That's and fascinating. That's tantamount to killing arbitration. So. We could probably devote a whole episode just to that topic, and maybe we will. Um, so let, let's let's put that issue on hold for now, because I do want to get to the Supreme Court case, which you know obviously is a monumental case for the for this agency and potentially for other agencies too. Um, you know, it was argued in early October, and I should say we're recording this episode on October twenty seventh. Um, you know, the, the case is not the first constitutional challenge to the CFPB to reach the Supreme Court. Uh, a few years ago, of course, we had the Sala Law case in which the Supreme Court ultimately held unconstitutional uh, provision in Dodd-Frank that said the CFPB director could only be fired for cause. Uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court severed that provision from the statute. The CFPB essentially continued to operate as it did before, um, except, of course, the president can now fire the CFPB director anytime the president wants. Uh, th this latest challenge comes from a payday lending 
group that argues that the CFPB's funding structure is unconstitutional because the Bureau doesn't go through the normal congressional appropriations process, but rather gets its funding from the Federal Reserve's budget. Like I said, oral arguments were held earlier in October, October 3rd, I think was the date. And I think, you know, I think coming out of that argument, the general view of most observers was that the court's questions were much more skeptical of the challenger's arguments than, you know, many of us had anticipated. Um, So, you know, I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts, Alan, on this case you know, in part because, you know, just before the case was argued, you wrote an op-ed in The American Banker uh, in which you argued that the court should find the CFPB's funding structure unconstitutional, but should leave the remedy to Congress. Um, so, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts. Maybe maybe tell us more about the case, how you think it should be decided versus how you think it will be decided. Yeah, sure, Elliot. I'll uh, I'll be happy to cover that. So um, uh, the case emanated out of a challenge to another Cordray, uh, I guess you could say a legacy regulation uh, that dealt with the payday lending industry, a regulation that if it ever ever had become final in its uh, original form, uh, it would have put a huge percentage of the payday lending industry out of business, uh, mostly because uh, it, 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 it required companies in that industry to do an ability to repay determination before they can make a loan to a, a customer. Uh, the industry was built on the concept of not doing credit bureau reports not doing traditional underwriting, but rather the fact that uh, if you had a job and you were getting a paycheck, uh, you would qualify. So it was a a big deal for the industry. And over the years, I I have done a lot of work uh, in that industry. And uh, I can tell you from, you know, firsthand what what a uh, draconian regulation that was. Well, anyway, the uh, an organization called CFSA, which is a Trade Association of Payday Lenders, uh, uh, and a, a a trade association in Texas of payday lenders brought the lawsuit uh, against the CFPB, challenging the legality of that regulation on a lot of different grounds. Initially, none of them had to do with this constitutional ground dealing with um, uh, whether or not the funding mechanism uh, was uh, comported with the Constitution, but but focused on challenges under the Administrative Procedures Act and uh, uh, and whether or not uh, the CFPB complied with uh, the law that gave them the authority to issue regulations, um, but not constitutional uh, issues. Then again, you had the election occur and you had Kathy Craniger take over and she went through a process, a, a regulatory process again, to eliminate the ability to repay provisions and leaving in place only what I would say uh, pretty benign uh, provisions dealing with 
how many times you could um, a pro- submit uh, an item, uh, the, a payment that was made to repay a payday loan, uh, how many times uh, you could, uh, uh, if you got a check, you could submit it uh, to the bank, even though it was continuing to bounce. Uh, in any event, um, uh, the litigation continued. The litigation already had developed a life of its own. Uh, and it was in, in federal court in Texas, uh, the home of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, eventually, the constitutional issue got brought into the case. And the case, they lost in the district court. That is CFSA loss. Went up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Fifth Circuit, in a unanimous opinion, uh, issued by three Republican conservative judges appointed by President Trump, they ended up invalidating the uh, payday lending rule on the theory that uh, it was, um, uh, the funding was unconstitutional. Uh, And uh, they uh, went beyond that and they said the remedy for that was to invalidate the payday lending reg, but also they suggested that all other actions that have been taken by the CFPB uh, would be uh, invalid. Serpetition gets filed in the Supreme Court uh, with no surprise that they granted it. And I must say at the time, I said CFPB is in big, big trouble because here, you have an agency that is really the poster child for the administrative state that the, the Supreme Court abhors. Uh, they, they've never liked the administrative agencies and the CFPB is the poster child coming before them. The Supreme Court already, as you pointed out, Elliot, uh, had... Um, uh, found that another provision in Dodd-Frank uh, dealing with the ability of the president to remove uh, uh, the uh, CFPB director only for cause in the seal of law case, they already had the occasion to say that that was unconstitutional. And they didn't like the fact that the, the CFPB was being managed by a single director and had such extraordinary power actually in some areas, more power than the president of the United States. So I'm thinking, even though the Fifth Circuit opinion left a lot to be desired, it's it's reasoning, it wasn't really all that clear. uh, And I don't think it all, it held together very well. Uh, My view was the Supreme Court is controlled by six Republican conservative justices that don't like this agency, they're going to find a way to affirm the Fifth Circuit, but perhaps do it on different grounds, okay? Uh, And then comes the oral argument. Uh, Turned out I was not in Washington hearing the oral argument. I was very lucky. I was on vacation with my wife on a riverboat cruise in the southern part of France. So uh, I, I, could, I could only, I didn't really have very good Wi-Fi reception, but I could listen to the argument and I caught parts of it. 
Uh, and then I got the transcript and uh, read through it actually a few times. And uh, then uh, we had on uh, two weeks after the oral argument on October 17th, I had a webinar roundtable that uh, I uh, hosted where I invited six lawyers who wrote amicus briefs uh, in that case for all sides who wrote them for CFPB, who wrote them for CFSA, and one brief that was filed by the Mortgage Bankers Association where they took no uh, position on the constitutional issue, but said, if you find that is the funding is unconstitutional, by God, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. The mortgage industry wants all these regulations. They spent a fortune complying with all these regulations, and there'd be utter chaos if you throw out all the regulations. Well, uh, the interesting thing uh, and the bottom line of the webinar roundtable and my bottom line right now is I think the CFPB is going to win. Um, Elliot always hazardous to predict the how the Supreme Court is going to come out based on an oral argument. But I got to tell you that, to my great surprise, uh, the questions that were posed by uh, Justice Barrett, uh, for one, um, and um, uh, also <coughs> by uh, Justice um, uh, Kavanaugh, uh, another uh, conservative uh, justice. Uh, th those two justices in particular, combined with the three liberal justices who absolutely are going to vote for CFPB, uh, I, I think that gives the CFPB a, at least a five to four majority. It might even be six to three. One member of our webinar roundtable uh, came out and said he thought it'd be seven to two. Uh, and he said he wouldn't even be surprised if it was unanimous. So um, uh, it, it we'll have to wait and see. Uh, exactly. It, it, it's very unclear. The, the Supreme Court showed no interest at all in talking about the remedy. That to me is a very, uh, uh, you know, if you're rooting for the CFPB to, to lose, that's a very bad sign. Because yeah. that is an extremely complicated area that I would have thought they would have spent a lot of, the conservative justices would have spent a lot of time in that area. The only person who even raised that was Sotomayor, uh, a liberal justice, uh, who, who in a perfunctory way uh, asked the uh, counsel to CFSA uh, for his opinion on that. Uh, and I think he wisely uh, said that uh, that's really an issue. Most of that can be uh, put, given to Congress to figure out if, uh, if the court finds that the funding mechanism was unconstitutional. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting when uh, Justice Sotomayor even raised the remedy question. She, she prefaced it by saying, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but we haven't even talked about remedies yet. Yeah. Um, so I thought well, that was I interesting. Think, I think that uh, that, that speaks volumes. I, I really do. Yeah, although and, I wonder. So, you know, I'm, I'm one of the 
the few people, maybe the only person left who who tends to think that, that um, the CFSA still has has a, a, a you know is still likely to win. Um, and, and and I get why people you know the CFPB. No, no, I I think the CFPB will still lose. I think I think there's oh, a good chance the court well, finds okay. the funding structure yeah. unconstitutional. And you yeah. know, you spoke about Kavanaugh and Barrett. And, you know, I think with Kavanaugh in particular, a lot of people are focused on his comments about, you know, how Congress could, you know, just go back and change the funding yeah. mechanism whenever it wants. Um, but I haven't seen a lot of people talk about what sort of followed that, where he, um, where Noel Francisco, you know, who argued um, for the for the challengers, um, you know, said that that Dodd-Frank essentially fl- flipped the baseline. And that, that's the phrase he used, flipped the baseline in terms of how, how the funding works, right? Basically going, moving from Congress, who normally, you know, has that task, um, and flipping it over to the agency to determine how much funding it should get every year. Um, right. and, and Kavanaugh said, you know, he said, I agree with that. I agree with that view, basically. So, you know, I, th- I think maybe those... That that comment gives me some hesitation, um, and and you know makes me think that maybe, um, you know the the challengers will do better than a lot of people thought coming out of argument. And then with Barrett, you know, a lot of people had the same view about her questioning in the student loan case. Um, you know, the the student loan debt forgiveness case that was argued earlier uh, this year, I believe, um, and she had a lot of questions in that case too for the challengers um and it's but but ultimately she wound up you know ruling against the debt forgiveness uh um uh that the administration wanted to um uh enact um and so you know my view of barrett is that she's always sort of looking for that um like uh limiting principle and and that's what she's getting at and eventually she'll find it or she'll come up with it if if she doesn't get you know the right answer, so so I'm 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 not convinced that the CFPB is going to win, but but like you said, you know, you can't always read too much into into the questions. Um, so we'll we'll see yeah, how it turns well, out. And a lot of times, you're you're right. The justices uh, will use uh, the oral argument. Uh, Sometimes, uh, just uh, they like to play the devil's advocate. Uh, you know, it's sort of fun. Uh, to do that. They can do that. They're a Supreme Court justice. They can ask any questions that they want. Uh, and uh, you're right. You, 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 uh, you don't know for sure what's in the back of their mind. But uh, I think, you know, of the thing that to me was uh, the most demonstrative was really what didn't happen. And that is that there was not uh, a lot of probing on the remedy issue. Uh, I think what may be behind uh, the, you know, if I'm right that the CFPB is going to win, they're concerned uh, as they should be, because it is an issue that needs to be dealt with in the opinion if they find against CFPB. What does that mean for other agencies who also don't have to go hat in hand to Congress every year uh, to get a an annual appropriation. Agencies like the Federal Reserve Board, the Comptroller of the Currency, 
the FDIC, the post office, and there are lots of agencies like that. Um, in my op-ed, I found what I thought was a fairly easy way to distinguish the CFPB from all those other agencies, and that is all those other agencies are self-funded. They're not funded by any money from the government, uh, from the Treasury or any other government source. They get their money from, in the case of the FDIC, insurance premiums, the comptroller of the currency, fees that they charge to the national banks that they regulate and supervise. The Federal Reserve Board gets its money principally from the Federal Reserve Bank's that are under the umbrella of the Federal Reserve that's engaged in all kinds of open market transactions involving treasury securities. Uh, and uh, that's how they get funded. They, they don't get their money from the, the federal government either. Uh, but there seemed, uh, surprisingly, uh, that was not really honed in. I mean, it was mentioned very much by... Um, uh, 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 the uh, Solicitor General, because um, uh, she made a big deal out of that uh, and kept, you know, of course, focusing on the customs service. That was the paradigm uh, that she was hooked into. Uh, and even the customs service, they, they got their money from customs. Uh, they were self-funded. So um, I, I, uh, I saw a way of distinguishing it. I put it into my op-ed article on the American Banker, but frankly, uh, I, I wonder whether any of the justices will even read that article uh, and, and whether that will turn them around. Oh, I'm sure that I'm sure they've all read it. Um, and I, but on that point, I do. Th I I think the Fifth Circuit actually addressed those differences between the CFPB and the other agencies, yeah. right? In in sort of trying to limit its own opinion, which you know I think most people thought it was, um, you know, uh, had gone pretty far in any event but but the, right, but, the, right. but the fifth circuit distinguished the cfpb from the fhfa from the federal reserve um so yeah. it did cabin its opinion and i you know if the supreme court um you know rules against the cfpb i would expect them to do that too i wonder uh, on you know a couple things uh, on the remedy issue you know i wonder if it's the kind of thing where you know the, if the supreme court finds the funding structure unconstitutional, they, they sort of remand it back to the Fifth Circuit to sort of do more on remedy as to just how, how you know, how extensive um, the impact is on, you know, everything the CFPB has done in terms of enforcement and regulations. Um, and, and then, you know, also that could, that buys Congress time to fix the statute as well. Uh, but we'll see. Um, well, they could, they, could, they could do that, Elliot, or they might not send it back to the Fifth Circuit, but just stay the mandate of the court. In other words, hold the opinion uh, until and to give Congress some period of time to fix the constitutional issue and at the same time ratify the actions of the CFPB that this current Congress thinks should be ratified and not ratify uh, or invalidate other actions uh, that it doesn't like. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we it's quite a Congress that we have, right? Uh, it's hard to say that um, 
uh, doing that is going to result in uh, the Congress paying any attention, particularly during an election year to this issue. It's probably the last thing that they want to deal with. So um, it, it, that is a messy, a real messy issue. Uh, because, I mean, I, I, looking at my clients, I have some clients, they don't care, care about the payday lending regulation. If you're not in payday lending, you wouldn't care at all about that. Uh, they care about other regulations. Some of our clients would love to see regulations invalidated. Our mortgage clients, just the opposite. So even within the industry, uh, there's not unanimity of opinion. Yeah. So, um, so let's say you're right and the CFPB wins. Um, how worried are you that that really emboldens the agency to you know, be even more aggressive than it's been? And I'm thinking just recently of you know, the announcement that they're ramping up their enforcement uh, team by you know, 50%. Well, they are already emboldened, uh, Elliot. Uh, I, I can't. I, I thought... When the Fifth Circuit came down with this opinion, they'd maintain a low profile until the Supreme Court had decided the case. My thinking, not that it was going to have that much of an impact on the Supreme Court, but my feeling was if uh, the CFPB is held to be unconstitutional, at that point, Chopra might have to go hat in hand to Congress and to beg for his agency uh, to continue into in, in existence and beg uh, that they not invalidate everything that the agency has done over 12 or 13 years. So um, uh, that's what I thought uh, was going to happen. That's not what happened. Uh, it didn't. It, it was water off a duck's back as far as uh, Roe Chopra was concerned. Uh, you wouldn't know uh, that he had this... Um, big cloud hanging over the agency uh, or, or an albatross, you could say. Uh, it, not at all. Now, will it embolden him even more? Yeah, it definitely will. Uh, you, you know, they haven't used uh, up the, the budget that the uh, Congress specified that they, you know, they put a cap on how much they could request each year from the Fed. They've never come that close to, to reaching the maximum amount, uh, they're going to do this hiring. Uh, they're going to have it's going to cost a lot of money. So I am expecting enforcement will ramp up. Remember, I told you that was the one area that Chopra wasn't quite as focused on. Uh, I think that will change. Uh, I, I do think that. Uh, there'll be even more in the regulatory area. He'll, I think that more he'll want to supervise more companies than he's ever done uh, before. Uh, you know, it, it might include data brokers and uh, and aggregators of uh, of uh, accounts. Uh, it, 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 they they don't yet uh, regulate installment lenders. Uh, I think that will greatly expand. I think he'll expand in all three areas that I identified. And he'll continue to do things without regulations. He'll do, uh, if he wants something done quickly, he'll find some other way of accomplishing that objective. Now, that's the, the good news for him, or at least that, that's 
going to make him feel, uh, you know, re-energized, I guess. Uh, but he will continue to be attacked by the industry. Uh, I think we the industry will have used up the constitutional theories for attacking the agency, but there are a lot of other theories for attacking what it's done. Uh, as you pointed out, you mentioned the lawsuit that was brought cha challenging his, the change in the UDEP exam manual to encompass discrimination. And the court uh, uh, held that that regulation was invalid, not only because of the constitutional issue, but also uh, because of the uh, a statutory issue that Congress never would have thought when they enacted UDAP, yep. which you know was originally part of the Federal Trade Commission Act decades ago, that that was going to encompass discrimination. And the Supreme Court has this doctrine called the Major Questions Doctrine. Uh, and I think based on that doctrine, uh, the uh, district court was right. Uh, undoubtedly, there will be an appeal of that case to the, you can only go to the Fifth Circuit. They don't have any choice. Uh, the nice thing about that the industry can do, they can decide where to sue the CFPB. And they seem to like Texas. <laughs> I wonder why. I wonder why. All right, we're, we're running out of time. So, Nathan, why don't, why don't you uh, ask our grab bag question? Yeah, so, you know, I get the, I get the tough one. Uh, so this is something we ask all of our guests. So if you were stuck on a desert island and you're only allowed to bring uh, a CD player with three albums or – Let's just call it your MP3 player. Uh, you know, what albums would you bring? Yeah. Now, this is gonna, probably going to surprise uh, all of you. Uh, I, I, I am a jazz aficionado. Uh, I, I am not, uh, uh, and I have been since I, actually I was a little kid. I don't play an instrument. But I would probably bring a Sonny Rollins album, a John Coltrane album, and Miles Davis, uh, not when Miles did not later in his career when he went into jazz fusion uh, and, and it became more like rock. But I like traditional hard bop, bebop jazz. That's what I would uh, play on my desert island. Can never go wrong with jazz. And, and I'm sure, uh, you know, the, the ships that pass by your island would enjoy listening to that music, too. <laughs> uh, well, Alan, um, unfortunately, we're, right, we're out of time. So unfortunately, we have to wrap up this episode of Votes and Verdicts. But we are so grateful to you, Alan Kaplinski, for appearing on this episode. I, this was really a fascinating and informative discussion about a very important moment in time for a very important government agency and the companies that it regulates, um, and its impact on the American economy. So we thank you, the listener, for taking the time to join and to listen to this episode. And as a reminder, you can read all of our Bloomberg intelligence research on the Bloomberg terminal at BIGO. Thank you again, and have a great day. What could you do if your data was working for you 
and not against you. With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.